This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is uh, Peter Hannaford talking to you from a, a little town about 30 miles north of London town in the United Kingdom. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us at this time of the day. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, I would like our listeners to know a little bit more about you. So could you tell us who you are, what you do, and where are you at in your career? Sure. So um, <laughs> I listened to a couple of your podcasts before, and people always start by saying, how much time have you got? Well, listen, I know how much time you've got, so I'm going to keep this within the allotted time scale. So I, I'm kind of, um, uh, you know, I've been, uh, I've been in this game for uh, 50 years. Uh, I know, I know you don't believe that, but, <laughs> but it's true. So I'm kind of a child of the '60s, I guess. I, um, I was in London during the '60s. I was at school during the '60s. And uh, I mean, that was a brilliant place to be. You didn't realize it at the time, but now you look back and you think, what a, what a wonderful time to be kind of alive and in, and in London dur- during that time. So uh, school wasn't on the agenda. Um, so uh, I left school uh, after we have these sort of O levels, which is like the first lot of, of qualifications you get. Uh, not many people wanted to go to university, so we just wanted to get out there into the world. So I, I left school and I wanted to be a journalist, but uh, uh, I got shortlisted for a job on the local newspaper but because the other guy uh, typed his application and I wrote mine. He got the job. So, uh, so my dad said, look, I've got a friend who's in banking uh, and he makes a lot of money on the stock market. Why don't you go and go into banking? Well, listen, I why not? You know, it's a job. And in those days, you could more, more or less pick the job you wanted. There were more jobs than, than, than people. We were very lucky. So I went to work for a bank and uh, I discovered, uh, you know, pubs and uh, and soccer. So I I played football. My life revolved around playing playing uh, uh, soccer on a Saturday. Um, and and it was a, it was just a, it was just a great time. Um, and I'd already been here a few years when um, I uh, – we're now sort of talking about uh, about 19 the, – the late 60s um, when uh, commercial computing was just coming into its own. So firms were starting to buy these computers. Um, they had nobody to uh, to program them or operate them because the, you know, that they, they, people didn't exist. So uh, – so the, the bank I was with bought a computer. They gave everybody an aptitude test. <laughs> you know, if you could add up three numbers, that was it. You were you were in. So uh, I joined the computer department first as an operator, and then uh, and then as a programmer. Uh, and I've noticed a few of your your people, I think, including you, Phil, were, had a bit of experience in in programming. So yeah, so I was a programmer because. You know, in those days, to be a programmer, you're a bit like being a rock star. It was the next best thing. A computer program was brilliant. And I tell you, I loved it. Uh, unlike uh, a few other people that I've spoken to, I just loved programming. 
I thought, and I still think that's the best job I've ever had because it's the kind of job where you finish what you're doing. You know, you, you get to work on something, you write the program. Sometimes you're up all night. You know, I can remember coming out of the bank at, in, at dawn, you know, having been trying to get this program to run and, and it and it ran and you I came out, you know, 10 foot in the air because, you know, you you finished it, you've done it, you run it, and it worked. And I thought that was brilliant. And I've never had a job quite like that because as you progress, you never really get where you're going. There's always that horizon that you never get to. So it's not the same. Um, not that I'd want to go back. So so I was I did this for a few years. Um, I was pretty dedicated. I, I did love working, as I say, and I enjoyed it. And the bank decided to open in in Nigeria, in West Africa. And uh, although it was a French bank I worked for, because Nigeria was was an ex sort of British colony, they wanted Brits to go and staff it up. So uh, I went out there in in '76 to uh, to help them start the bank in in nigeria which meant building um, a data center of sorts um and set up the, the, the computer department and have that running and that was um that was a brilliant time when i went there they told me this is the land of limitless impossibility and i tell you to <laughs> try to run a data center when when you only have power for you know, eight hours a day is, is a bit of a challenge. Um, and people used to steal things. And it was it was pretty interesting, shall I say. But anyway, it, it was it was a great time. Uh, they paid me a lot of money to do it. They paid, you know, your house was provided, your driver, your, your, your nanny. You know, it was uh, it was a pretty good time. And your salary was paid offshore. So even better. Uh, it was a bit like winning the lottery. But then the health wasn't so good. You know, the. My wife had um, had well, everything, uh, miscarriage, dysentery, malaria. So we thought, hey, you know, this it's a great time, but but maybe after three or four years, it's it's time to go back. So uh, so I went back, and they they put me in charge of the the data processing department, which was which was good. So you know, here I am. I think I was about uh, thirty years old um, then. Uh, in charge of the, the computer department, which again was was good fun, and that was the days when, um, I mean, when I went back, we'd inherited uh, somebody that they decided to buy this this Data General computer, which at the time was state of the art, right? Um, but all my chums in other banks had IBM. I wanted to be an IBM customer. I just loved you know, the whole thing. So, you know, IBM would fly you off in their jets all, all over the place. And I thought, yeah, I like this kind of thing. Well, and we ended up buying by IBM, and uh, I was a big fan of IBM at the time. I thought they were a brilliant organisation. They could have sold anything, could have sold toilet rolls, but they just happened to sell computers. But they were so good at it, and I loved, I loved the company. I was a huge fan. Uh, and then I got headhunted myself off to uh, uh, an Arab consortium bank in Paris, a bit smaller, but with a global remit. Um, and I went there, and that was, say, I was in Paris uh, most of my time. Um, and then that bank got acquired by another French bank. So uh, I left, and uh, I used my redundancy money to, to start my first company. So I just I got to the point where I I liked working, but I thought, you know, because I'm, I sort of work a lot, 
my wife used to tell me if you were a postman, you'd end up looking for more letters to deliver at the end of the day. You know, why don't you stop working? It's not your company. And I thought, no, it isn't. But maybe I should have my own company. So, yeah, so in 19, uh, 1989, I started, I started my company. Uh, I started a company that would relocate other companies, but where um, – so if a big firm was moving, we would do all the planning for them. We'd, we'd, we'd build their computer rooms. If it was a bank, we'd build their dealing rooms. So there was still a lot of technology involved. Our, our sort of strap line was if, you, if you're moving your office and on day one your chairs aren't there, well, you can sit in orange boxes, but if your phones aren't working or your network is down, it's a bit serious. So that was our USP. Um, so I started this company in in uh, in eighty nine, and uh, we 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 did pretty well. Um, and then in nineteen ninety five, this dot com bubble came along, and we moved into building data centers. I mean, at that, at that time, around eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, anyone that had a garage wanted to turn it into a data center. It was a boom time for data centers. So we got in, we were one of the first people to design and build data centers. And uh, it was because there was nobody else doing it. Uh, I mean, I had, I had somebody knock on the door one day and said, look, I'm going to, I want to, uh, you know, I've got some racks over this co-location, the telehouse over the way here. And, uh, but I want to, I want my own data center. So we, we went, I went out with him to look at buildings. We were looking at, you know, 5,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet buildings. And then he saw this building that was 120,000 square feet and said, I, I think we'll turn it into a data center. Can you do it? Uh, of course I can, I said. So we built this thing on the back of a cigarette packet. You know, we really made it up as we went along. Um, but we did it pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, the trick, you get obviously smarter people in that do know what they're doing. So uh, we built that and we, we became one of the biggest design and build firms in data centers in in Europe. And our turnover went from from nothing to $200 million in like a few years. It was crazy time. Uh, but then, of course, it all came to a crash in 2000. The whole thing stopped. Uh, I mean, just before we crashed, uh, we were seen as the, the picks and shovels. You know, investment banks were coming to us and say, hey, you guys, you know, you're building these things. Uh, we'd like to, you know, invest in you. And a few people did invest in it. So my, the company was valued at that time at about $20 million. Um, and as I owned 80% of it, I mean, that was it. You know, I was made, except, you know, a few weeks later, it all fell off a cliff and I could tear that bit of paper up and throw it away. Um, so uh, we, we carried on for a bit. I sold, I sold the company to, to somebody else, one of the big data center operators, because we were in the middle of building this big data center for them. And we kind of were, we had a bit of a catch-22. They're not paying us. We're not building it. You know, they've raised a lot of money on, on leveraging these big data centers. So that we, I sold it onto them and went on and did something else. We, did a, we carried on in the business, kind of doing design and build. Um, and, and during that journey, we'd invented a bit of technology. We, we were trying to figure out how to build data centers in a more efficient way. And we came up with this, uh, with a rack, which had its own uh, cooling in it for high-density computing. 
but uh, it was unlike some of these other people that, that had developed this technology. So our cooling core was was vertical in the rack, so we were delivering the same kind of cooling top to bottom. Uh, uh, and um, I sold the company to to APC to American Power Conversion in uh, in 2003. So I went to work for uh, APC then, and what a brilliant company that was! I loved that. Uh, it, you, you were just allowed to do things, a lot of freedom. Um, probably the best boss I've ever had. He was in St. Louis. I'm in London, but. Uh, we just got on famously, um, and that went on for a couple of years until they sold the company to Schneider Electric, bought APC in uh, 2007. A memorable day, it was Valentine's Day and on 2011 that, that they bought the company, and things changed a little. Schneider's a very big company, very good company, got some great, great people, but 150,000 people. It wasn't for me, so um, I stayed there for a few years, and then, and then decided to uh, to go back out into the world again. So I didn't really know what to do. I've never really known what to do. I mean, I I still don't know what to do. I'm still looking for my job. I'm drifting along here, thinking I'm not quite sure what I want to do when I grow up. Um, maybe I've never grown up, but and then I thought, look, I know I know a lot of people. I've got a big fat address book. Maybe I should go into, you know, headhunting, recruitment, you know, because people keep asking you, do you know anybody? So uh, I found that there wasn't one recruitment company that specialised in, in, in our sector. Nobody had, had sort of just nailed it. So I, I set up a, a company called Data Centre People. We went into uh, recruitment. Um, and then I did that for... Um, for 10 years, I started an executive search arm a couple of years back, uh, which uh, which I liked a lot more because you get to meet a lot of people. It's all about meeting people. Uh, it, it's, it's not transactional. Uh, and then uh, I sold data center people to the management. They did an MBO in 2020, uh, this year, earlier this year in January. Uh, and I'm now trundling along uh, doing executive search with, with Portman. They're still working on a global basis. So we have people in Singapore and, um, and, and in, in, in London. So, um, so that's what I'm doing. I'm still looking for, you know, something I really want to do. And I, as I say, when I, uh, when I grow up. What a great story this is from playing football to wanting to become a journalist to getting into IT and coding to getting into data center space and designing building infrastructures to designing the product and selling it to one of the largest manufacturers globally and leading that initiative now to the executive search and uh, helping out the data center industry. Immaculate. This is absolutely phenomenal. You know, it's kind of interesting that you bring up that you're still trying to find yourself, aren't we all? Uh, but you've had a lot of great experiences through this journey. What's one thing that really stands out for you and uh, what, what's that magic for your success and the experiences that you've developed over the last 30 years of your career? I don't look at it as success. I don't think I've been successful. I mean, I just, I just carried on, you know, I mean, I, I sit there. I, I, I would say that you have perfected a lot of people's lives. 
You've uh, contributed a lot to the infrastructure. Like, for instance, you're selling the, the product over to Schneider or APC, for that matter, with in-row cooling. I mean, that, that was a game changer. I mean, people were still mixing hot air with cold air uh, till, till you came up with a solution like that. I mean, I wouldn't leave myself short there. Yeah, I mean, look, it wasn't it wasn't me personally. I mean, I had a I had a guy. I'm I'm I was sort of the commercial guy. I can take my, if I've got any skill, it's taking an idea and doing something with it. I'm not I'm not always the guy that comes up with the idea. I, you know, if I hear it and I like it, I'll I'm a bit I'm a bit of an entrepreneur, I guess. You know, that's where I will put all my efforts. But you're right, it was a game changer. And and even now, you know, when you place people into companies. You just got that feeling that they're going to make a big difference, and it is it is satisfying. And I know, and you know, it sounds trite, but uh, I, I know that when I do finally disappear, uh, at least uh, there will be some legacy. Yeah, people can say that you know, um, did I make a difference? Well, in in a small way, I guess I do because that technology was, as you say, it was a game changer, and everybody copied it. You know. Um, so most of the cooling manufacturers in their portfolio somewhere have a rack with a vertical coil in there, um, and and that's the basis of you know of a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of solutions these days. I mean, cooling these days is is becoming less important uh, now. People have woken up to the fact that uh, you know 27 degrees or whatever the ash rate. Uh, benchmark is 27 degrees is not cold uh you know you get to 27 degrees in the uk and we put our swimming shorts on i know it's it's probably cold to you nabil but uh, to us uh in the rest of the world 27 degrees is is pretty warm so the fact that these you know the temperatures have have, have gone up from the days when it was you know everybody shivered in data centers um it, it's changed a lot now so people have come to realize in fact when i was at schneider we banned the i banned the use of cooling i said this isn't cooling we're not talking about cooling we're talking about heat removal you're talking about removing excess heat you're not cooling things well i think and in general when people walked into a data center you know they they it was about aesthetics it was about how they felt not about what was optimal for the computer right so i i you know i ran a data center um, and I still, to a certain extent, run a data center. When you're walking someone through it, there's just this expectation that they're cold, whether that's the best thing for the computer or not. Frankly, you know, the colder the air and the, the larger the differential between the air inside the computer and outside the computer, you're basically creating condensation that forms inside. You probably don't want it to be, you know, as differential as, say, the guy in the suit that walks into the data center and just picks the data center based on which one he's the coldest in. Yeah, and in fact, you know, humidity is much more probably important than, uh, than, than you know, temperature. It's obviously fluctuations, but once people got to know that. Uh, but, yeah, coming back to your point, uh, Nabil, no, I don't think, I don't think of myself as, as being uh, successful. I'm content, you know, when I look around, when I think for the last, you know, it's given me a living for the last, you know, 50 years or so, and, um, uh, yeah, you know, I've got a nice house and, nice cars and things. So I guess when you think about it, yeah, it's given me a, a living, but I, but I don't think of it as a success, funnily enough. I'm not, not in the way that you know, some of these other guys have, have done it. 
Here's the thing that's uh, here. The th here's the thing that's amazing. You know, I think the, the the current generation has been kind of trained to try to have a plan. You know, this is what I want to do for a living. This is where I'm going to go to school. I want to be in finance, or I want to be a lawyer, or, and this is the trajectory I need to follow in order to be successful. And you know, keep your eye on the prize, if you will. Um, and what I have found about the most successful people, and I don't know, I mean, the, your, your humbleness is, is incredible, but I can assure you, you've been, you've been a success. You've sold you know, several companies that you've started and, and sold to these large organizations. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. But you know, the, the people that are the most successful are the ones that just kind of you know, went with the flow and just allowed you know, the, the circumstances to dictate how they responded to them and didn't necessarily have that fear of change and, and, and fear of not following some preordained plan. How much do you think that was, um, you know, uh, a large factor to, to your success? And, and how do you, is that something you can teach? Is that something that you just had or, or you know, was there a conscious effort to just kind of go with the flow? Yeah, I, I, no, it, was, it wasn't a conscious effort. I mean, that's the whole point. Right. It was very, it was very unconscious. I think, I think what you need is confidence to be able to do something, um, something that you're not sure about. I think being a, being a programmer also teaches you logic as well. So, you you know, you're doing these things in step. I mean, even today, I need to know what I'm going to do, not not in an hour's time, but after that and after that and after that. I need a plan in my head. It doesn't always work out, but but I, I want I want to know what it is. And I think I think maybe, you know, programming taught you that. But um, no, look, it. If you teach them anything, it's be bold and courageous and give it a go. And don't be afraid of failure. I mean, everybody will also say this. You know, if you win six out of ten, you're doing pretty well. And I've had a few disasters. Um, the only thing that's probably kept me from jumping off a bridge was my wife kept telling me, you know, what's the problem? Just get on with it. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm pulling my hair out. As you can see, there's not much left. But I'm pulling my hair out thinking, what's going to happen? This is not going to work. And, and she's saying, don't be ridiculous. You know, get on with it. And um, and so you do. There's Sometimes there's, there's nowhere else to go. You know, there have been a point when I thought, this is not going to work. You know, we're not getting any business in. This has gone wrong. What am I going to do next? And then you can't think of what to do next. So you think, hey, you know what? I've just got to make this work. And and you do. And you need to be persistent. I say. So I think you need them to tell them and they need to learn that not everything works the way you want it to work. You've got to accept sometimes that, you know, you're going to have you're going to have problems and you're going to have failures. Uh, and and in in the US it's different you know you you embrace failures in fact you probably cannot be successful unless you've had a few failures and a few scars along the way kind of in the UK that wasn't quite the same you know it was it, you never like to admit that you failed there was an embarrassment we used to have a thing in it, it was written up in our computer and you know um, there are no failures only varying degrees of success so whatever you did <laughs> You know, we were we were doing okay. Um, so yeah, it's um, you just gotta you just gotta learn that. You know, don't don't yeah. dwell, don't ruminate, don't uh, don't sit and focus on what you can't do. Uh, try to come up with a solution and and just pivot and and move forward. It's uh, it's it's an incredible lesson that I think some people have a difficult time 
like recognizing when, you know, they're kind of in the midst of it. You have to be able to have that kind of 30,000 foot view and a recognition that whatever you're going through is not like some unbelievably existential crisis. It's just an issue and a problem that needs to be resolved. And, you know, you just say, if it doesn't work one way, you just try to, you try, you try to pivot. Yeah. And I think if you, you know, if you had that vision early on, this is what I'm going to do. This is, and, and you've got it mapped out and it doesn't work. That's when you kind of, that's when you kind of suffer a little bit. But if, you know, if you are going to be a little bit flexible, if, if you like doing what you're doing, um, just just keep doing it. I mean, that's what, you know, my boss way back in APC, my annual appraisal, I used to fly all the way over to St. Louis. I'd sit in his office. He'd say to me, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Now let's go and have a beer. And that was it. That was my annual appraisal. I mean, <laughs> well, I think you have actually nailed it on the head. The fear of failure is the root cause for people not trying to take the risks. And Phil and I have actually talked about this plenty of times in the previous podcast as well, whereby I've got a mindset that fail stands for first attempt in learning. And it should be just taken in that way, whereby it's an opportunity to excel. Uh, one of the things that I've learned about you uh, in, in this conversation and in, in, in prior conversations is that you're a risk taker. And at the end of the day, you've actually been doing things and getting yourselves engaged and involved in things and projects with a core value of just doing good for the environment, just doing good for the infrastructure and just being that change agent. Where and how did you develop that skill set? Look, as I say, I'm <laughs> it's hard skin, I suppose. Um, it, it comes from, um, I, I guess it comes from, you know, when you're, when you're, very young um it's got to start somewhere um because i think you know when when we look well, now now we're we're you know i'm looking for for talent for exceptional talent and what we what we tend to look for is number one is um is intellect now you know you've got to be smart because and you can't go to school to learn to be smarter you can't take any tablets to make you smarter you know intellect is something that's that's built in it's in your dna from a very young age how you use it you know is different so you're given a good start if you you know if you've got some some bit of some bit of intellect and i suppose you know maybe i was a little bit i had a little bit of that early on um and once you're smart, I think you can learn to, 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 to do these things. And I've always been one that I will try something. I mean, I, I'm a big, anyone that's worked with me would know, you get an idea and that's, we're going to do that. I put it right up the flagpole and say, let's go for this. And people would say, oh, 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 you know, well, just a minute. What about this? What about this? And I think if you learn, if you work with people, you can't, you can't do this, you know, this, this go for it all the time. You do need people that, you work with that will that will balance that out. Uh, so there are people that will start at the bottom of the flagpole and work out. I used to start at the top and come come down when they when they drag me down a bit. Um, so yeah, I just think it's probably something that's that's in you. I don't think you can learn uh, learn it. It's probably experience. That, you know, not many people have had to, that long experience that I have. And I think in our world. I'm not saying you, you don't get smarter, you do get wiser, um, but you tend to look at the big picture. And I don't think enough people look at 
the big picture these days. You know, they're, they're looking at their own little box, whether it's their network or power or whatever it is, they're, they're stuck in that little box. They're not looking at that, as you say, the 30,000 foot view. Why are we doing this? You know, what's the purpose of all this? You know, we all know that the, you know, that the, the, uh, you know, the, climate change and everything else is causing a big problem. We need to do something about it. But we nibble away at the edges without doing the, the really big thing. Um, and I used to, I, you know, I used to, when when PUE was a big thing, you know, when you had PUEs at like three uh, in the bad old days, I actually worked out that, you know, while, you, while we're just working at PUE in the data centre, I actually tracked back, you know, the power I thought, well, you know, where's all this power coming from and how efficient? So you track it all the way back to to the coal mine, basically. And you figure out that the amount of coal you need to generate a megawatt in a power station is a lot. And yet they're only 50% efficient. So 50% of that thermal energy is going straight up the chimney, back at back at source and then you lose a little bit through through distribution and, and then you get to the data center and then you know whatever it is two times three times of being used for, for power and cooling and all the other stuff um, but unless you take a look at that whole chain you don't realize how inefficient you know where you need to change things um, so you just need to take a step back sometimes and, and have a look uh, uh, say so the, the, the whole picture is getting a lot better now, obviously. So people have figured out that uh, you know we need we need to be more efficient, and uh, we'll see where that goes. But but the big thing, of course, is is we're still using this technology, and all the arguments are raging now about maybe we should switch the stuff off, and you know how efficient is Zoom compared to flying around all over the world? Well, uh, you know for me it's a no brainer, but people will still tell you. <laughs> Uh, you know, having Zoom calls is not very efficient and is generating, you know, millions of tons of, of carbon. But, but those arguments will go on for for some time. Well, those carbon emissions are a lot less than flying around the airplane across the world, especially for your appraisal just to go have a beer. Uh, <laughs> folks that don't uh, know what PUE is, uh, and for our listeners, just to clarify, PUE is power user effectiveness, which is actually a metric that we use in the data center industry to figure out um, the actual utilization of the power. So just think about it this way. Every time you send out an email, uh, a lot of power is actually being burned or utilized in the back end. And it's one of the metrics that we use to create more of an efficient environment and, and reduce the carbon footprint, which is really the goal for a lot of major companies on a go-forward basis, whereby we want to be in some way former ship carbon neutral at some point in time in the near future. Having said that, Peter, you're interacting with a lot of people especially with your executive search, what are some of the traits that you look for executives in the data center space or in, in, or in information technology? Well, it's, the, it's, it's finding people that fit, really. You know, I wish, they'd, I wish our clients would just let me pick the people for them. I think sometimes I, I know the people that would, that would work, but they somehow don't make it through. Um, but, um, you know, yeah. Um, what do we look for? So we're looking, as I say, primarily for uh, people that are smart. So intellect is always number one. Then, then things like um, 
uh, you know, you want people that are passionate, you want people that are motivated. And in fact, the last thing we look at is, is experience because that's the one thing that can change. As I said earlier, intellect won't change. You know, you've either got it or you haven't got it. Um, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you're you're useless because there's always jobs. You know, it depends on the what's job. That, what's that line from The Departed? The world needs pet plenty. Of, the, the world needs plenty of plumbers. Uh, well, they, they do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we used to have this thing in I love plumbers. Fact, by the way, I don't want to get angry. No, no, no. That's plumbers. fine. The world does need plenty of plumbers. We'd be well, lost in, in, in one of my old firms, they were paranoid about having A players. You know, and you think. <laughs> Where are all the BNC? Where's the soldiers? Where's the guys that are going to do the work? Because you can have all these smart people. But all I'm saying is, so intellect is is important, um, motivation, um, whatever your values are, are, are very important. And, and the, but the last thing we look for is, uh, the, you know, the resume tells you what somebody's done before. It doesn't tell you what they're capable of doing. And the trick is to find out what you think they will be capable of doing in this company. So company culture, getting the right fit into a company is is very important. You need to get to know the company. You know, I'm very lucky with some of our clients. I, I know them pretty well. I know the people there. So it's easy for us to find um, good people. And it's also, you know, Schneider is a brilliant company. But, but it didn't work for me because I'm too entrepreneurial. But at least I know the kind of people that really fit an organization like that and who would really thrive in that organization. So it, it helps to have that, you know, personal experience as well of what it's like to be in a company where maybe you're not the right fit and how, how frustrating it can be. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's that magic thing about having somebody that fits the right people that fit fit in the right uh, organization. I have to imagine that I know the answer to this question, but uh, I, I imagine formal education in a, in, a, in a particular discipline is not necessarily on the top of your list for 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 a particular uh, job. No, but it's it's uh, it's part of the selection process. You know, if you're if you if you're looking at uh, you know 20, 30 people uh, for for a particular job, you know, you have to start somewhere. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the formal education, but that's part of the filtering process. I mean, I'm I'm currently judging. Um, I'm a judge on the uh, on the data center dynamics uh, awards 2020 awards panel at the moment. I'm looking at young mission critical engineer of the year. Now, ten years ago, we were moaning about you know the average data center engineers, a 55-year-old white male, you know, where on earth are we going to go from here? Um, and now, uh, you know, looking at these these candidates, I mean, it is difficult to choose and you cannot find a more diverse bunch of people from all countries around the world who look to be amazing what they've done. So I don't think we need to worry too much about the future in terms of uh, in terms of the education and training. I mean, most people in the industry today fell into it. We didn't right. choose this industry. We we just drifted into it, uh, and we've made it work. So, but now we're finding people that are, you know, have woken up to the fact that there is this this world uh, of 
of digital infrastructure, digital acceleration, where I want to be, I want to be part of it. And you can, so I, I'm not at all concerned anymore about the future. There's plenty of talent out there and super smart kids coming on to, um, you know, to take over from old people like me. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, last question on this, uh, on, uh, on this kind of the selection process, given what you do with Executive Church, which is like, what kind of questions would you ask? Like, how do you determine that special something, that zeitgeist, that uh, that magic? Obviously, it's not. Is it just a matter of just asking about their background and you just trying to pick it up as part of a standard conversation or is there almost some type of survey that you ask where you know there'll be a, a particular question where that will be informative of you know how they answer that question uh, it, it's probably not as scientific as that uh, I mean executive search was always face to face we would always have to meet people this wasn't something you could do over the phone so you have to meet them you have to see how they react you know whether there's any uh, you know empathy there and you just get a good feeling of course we can't do that we haven't been able to do that since march but because zoom and, and teams have taken taken over and in fact will continue to take over so how people behave virtually is now becoming important and sometimes you know when you first you first somebody flashes up on the screen you've got a big picture there's a, a gut, you know, you initially, whether they're smiling or the way they're behaving, suddenly you think, I like, you know, we're off to a good start here. So the glass starts as, as half, uh, half full. Um, and there are some people that just, they just make the hairs on the back of my neck stick up. I mean, we've got one particular candidate who's being interviewed for, for a job. Uh, and they're looking for as you say, they're looking for this exceptional candidate. They describe it as the wow factor. We want someone that's going to wow us. Um, and I tell you, this this guy, he he literally, when I'm talking to him, I'm getting very excited about just the, what he's saying, the way he's saying it, the questions he's asking as well. Um, I, I, you know, you always like to think, you'll always get the candidate that, that you're talking to and, it's clear they haven't done any research on the company uh, before the call. Um, and in a way, you know, you can understand that because we're calling them. It's not like they've applied for the job. So you're calling them. We're still in trying to interest you in this particular role. Most of the people are what we call passive high performers. They're, they're very happy in their job, but they're at the top of the game. You're going to try and persuade them to move somewhere else. So, you some you just get it as 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 the conversation progresses. In in your conversations and and, and your search for the executives, uh, could you lay out a couple of questions? How, how do you judge someone's personality? I mean, and especially in this time and age that we are in right now, where we are we are doing this over a video call. The the body language isn't there, or if it is, it's hard to read through it. The eye contact isn't there. I might be looking at the camera, in the camera, away from the camera, whatever the case might be. That experience is not the same. How do you go about developing that personal relationship through this virtual world that we're living in now? Well, again, you've got to, you've got to obviously, you've got to look at what the job is, first of all. So if you're looking for, you know, a CTO, uh, it may be a slightly different person you're looking for than if they're, uh, uh, you know, a VP of sales so or, or a CEO. So um, 
you need to look at the job and what what the requirements are. Uh, and it's not just a question of ticking boxes, but you you know you'd be asking them to describe their their experience. And then you might you know, throw in something if they're not from the data center industry, and, and a lot of them aren't. They're coming in from outside. Um, you know, you'll ask them. You know, tell me a bit about. You know, what do you know about data centers? How important are data centers? You know, just to, just to see if they've done that bit of homework. And sometimes, you know, questions. I, I used to ask a question um, to the more technical people about. Um, you know, I'd say to somebody. You know, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry over the last 20 years? Now, of course, most people haven't been in the industry for 20 years. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of people today that, that are data center experts. You know, you join LinkedIn, uh, data center expert. That You know, I used to know most people. I, I don't know anybody these days. Um, so, yeah, there's a few questions you can throw in about uh, you know, like 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 cooling, or you know, how, what what big changes have you seen in cooling? Now, of course, there's no there's no answer, there's no right or wrong, but it's just the way they describe the thing. You know, how do you do really understand what's been going on? Um, uh, you're really you're really gauging confidence more than you're gauging like a specific amount of knowledge. Yeah, you are. You know, are they are they articulating what they're trying to say properly? Am I understanding it? You know, is it a com- are we having a conversation here that I can respond to and you can respond to? Are they are they reading a Wikipedia page? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, and, and some of them do. Um, but uh, yeah, but it's how they react as well. Even if you know what you want people to say is. It's a good question, uh, you know, but I, I don't even I, I don't know the answer to that. But, and even if they don't know it, how do you explain that? Don't try to answer it uh, if you don't know the answer, because you'll just trip up and, and there's a big you know, red cross you put. On and the, what, what more confidence is there than admitting that you don't know the answer to a particular question and how you handle that? It's almost better to ask them a question you know they shouldn't know. So you see how they handle not knowing yeah. something. Yeah, I don't do it deliberately, but sometimes it happens. You know, I, I get, you know, I know they're not going to know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. And sometimes they surprise you. Uh, I mean, the guy that this young guy I mentioned now, he had done so much homework on on the on the company. Uh, he'd looked at annual reports. He'd looked at the chairman. He'd looked at, into all their backgrounds, all their history. You know, he he really wanted the job. And you don't expect people early on in the process to want the job. I mean, typically you'd get, uh, this used to happen, you know, you, uh, HR, it's a good example where they'd, they'd speak to, we'd introduce them to somebody and they'd call them and they'd say, so why do you want to work for us? And the guy'd say, I don't, <laughs> you called me, <laughs> you know, I don't want to work for you. you. You know, you tell me why I should come and work for you. So, you know, but when you get people, it, and it often starts like that. They don't want to work for them because they've never heard of them or they don't know what the job is and they didn't they don't apply for the jobs. Um, but as you go through the process, if they really want the job, that comes across in 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 you know how keen they are, how keen they are to get feedback. You know, you'll interview somebody you know, in the morning and the afternoon, they'll be saying, how did I get on? You say, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you got on fine. I'm going to introduce you to, you know, the next the next level of the process. But I imagine um, they're too eager. That's a problem too. 
right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. tell. It could be, yeah, because they they're going to be disappointing. So I suppose the the best. I think ones poker are, player. I think that's what you should do with your next the next the next version of your life. You should be a poker player. <laughs> I did used to play cards, yeah, some time ago. Um, I can't remember if I was any good or not. Um, yeah, it's look. It's I, I think it's it's there's no science to it. If it was that easy, you could automate it. You know, this would be a prime candidate for AI. Feed your resume in. Here's the job description. Here's this guy. The one or not. I mean, a lot of people place great store on on uh, psychometrics as well. Um, I'm not a huge fan of psychometrics, I must say. Um, so, but but it can, you know, this is this is the the you know, this is the process where you do ask weird questions. You know, you're walking down alone and and you see you know a body on the floor and you know what do you do? I mean, all of this stuff. You know, um, this is taking a dark turn. But there is, you know, I don't want to knock it because there is a, a, a psychology behind it. Um, uh, you know, I'm learning too. And I think the big thing at the moment is is diversity. That is, that's huge now. And and I was a, a, a late convert. We have um, somebody that works uh, with us. I mean, she is, um, she's an associate professor at university. She's an academic. Her speciality is, is, um, is psychology. Um, and uh, and what a difference diversity makes in at, at senior level. And we've been running a series of of, uh, of events called Balance in the Boardroom, um, and she's she's chairing this uh, this thing. And she she said I said to her, look, really I can't actually see. You know, we we get a lot of clients saying we want more women in the process, and I'm saying look, uh, you know, if you look at the UK. Um, only 6% of engineers in the UK are women. So if we're trying to find an engineer for a particular role, senior role, uh, you know, only, and we only have to put 10 resumes on the table, it's going to be very difficult for a woman to make that, that 10 because they, they don't exist. And she said to me, look, she said, um, what you've got to remember is that, that women think differently to men. I said, listen, I've been married for you know, 50 years, don't you think I know that? <laughs> she said, no, but it's true. And, and it made me realize that, in fact, that is the, when we talk about diversity, we are not talking about uh, ethnicity, race, gender, age. What we're talking about is thinking, how people think. And that thinking is conditioned, obviously, by by all those things. But it does give that that element of uh, of, of difference when you're, you know, at a senior level, and and I'm, uh, you know, I've become a big convert now. So um, the other thing we look for now, uh, Phil, is is an element of diversity, especially at these senior levels. Uh, I think it is very important. You get different different views on things, which I say is conditioned by people's upbringing and, and a whole a whole host of things. All right. So a couple of takeaways that I've taken from it is that uh, be real, keep it real, be yourself. You know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah, don't fake it. Whatever you do, don't try to fake it because you're going to go into a job where you're going to be miserable uh, and you're not going to do a good job. You know, let us let us decide whether we think you're going to fit well into this company. Uh, let's, let's switch gears here real quickly as far as pandemic is concerned. You know, we've been in the lockdown for a long, 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 long time. We've stretched the boundaries of computing. 
Uh, we have stretched the boundaries of mankind and, and the social interaction. Uh, where do you think we are headed? Uh, how does 2021 look in, in your discussions and in your experience? Well, obviously, the, from, a, from a business environment, you know, we are, the world is obviously relying on, on, uh, on, on, uh, on us, basically. So, you know, digital transformation is the key to, to everything. So in a, in a business environment, we're in, you know, thank God that we are working in this world and we're not in, uh, you know, aviation or airlines or, you know, some of these other um, things are going to suffer. Um, I don't think we're going to get back to, I, I don't know what the new norm is going to look like. It's not going to look like it did in January this year, for sure. I think we're all going to learn to, you know, we're, we're probably never going to shake hands with people again. It's all going to be elbows. And, um, and we'll wear masks a lot more. I mean, they've been wearing masks in Asia for for, for years uh, so I think, and in our industry, in our industry, it actually makes the vast majority of us more attractive. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it, it, uh, how is it going to change? Uh, it was well, I say, it, it's um, we're learning to live with with uh, you know talking to people, interviewing people uh, over. Uh, sort of meeting them virtually, but as I say, that's going to be important. How they work. This is this is the this is the new norm from now on. You know, there'll there'll be less uh, interaction. Um, it, it's it, we need to get back to um, to to networking in some way. I mean, this is what I miss more than anything. Uh, I went to an event in last event I went to was in uh, was in Zurich in in March. Uh, it, it was an investor event. It was, you know, and you meet people, you have dinner, we have a great time, you have a few beers, a lot of discussions, meet new people. And then two weeks later, the shutters come down. I think um, we need to get back to, you know, at least uh, having dinner with people and a few beers with people. Um, because that's the way that we, we, we interact. You can't really meet people properly uh, in this in this medium, so that that has to happen. I think we have to get back to that bit. Otherwise, we're all going to go crazy. I'm already, you know, I, I was quite enjoying being locked down. I must confess, for a while. Um, so um, you know, it didn't affect me at all. But I'm now, you know, I'm now getting a bit fed up with it. I can't wait to. You know, as I say, I booked a flight. My son is in uh, is in New York. He's he's up in the Hudson Valley. He's, he's just moved there from Austin. He's been in America for fifteen years. So I have a, a granddaughter. Uh, I have a family there, um, but we haven't seen him for a year. So today I booked I booked a flight for uh, Easter, hoping that that um, you know we'll get back to that. So we, we've got to we'll creep back into it. But I don't think. Um, you know, I think this, the, the, we won't go back to how completely how it was before, because this thing is still going to be here, although we're going to be vaccinated. You know, who knows? Vaccinations last for a year or six months or whatever. So um, we're, we're going to have to get used to it. And then something else is going to come along. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I think, look, I think beyond uh, beyond the, the obvious, the, just the fact that we now once this this particular pandemic uh, uh, gets past us, I think. 
you know, the notion that people have now prior, you know, have the ability to prioritize when when they travel and you'll you'll not necessarily need, um, you know, to travel for business for things that are fairly innocuous. Um, I, you know, it should lead to just a, a better, you know, work-life balance, or as Nabil likes to call it, life-work balance and, and that sort of thing where you don't have to, you know, gone hopefully will be the days where, you know, the people, um, and, you know, I know my son has has friends whose, whose parents are in finance, and I know a lot of people, we all know a lot of people in finance that were traveling basically, you know, five, six days a week, sometimes for weeks at a time, you know, doing deal closings and all that. And the fact that there's been, there'll be like a one-year pause in that sort of thing. And the that industry has now kind of evolved to recognize that a lot of those things that used to be in-person can now be done remotely. That's not to say that there's no need to have in-person meetings and networking, but I really think the collaborative networking elements, which may have not necessarily taken precedence or priority, are the things that we miss the most, I think, uh, universally. And those are going to be the things that you prioritize, not just like getting formalized signatures or shaking hands and signing on the dotted line. Those things, you know, th- those were relics years ago. But for some reason, you know, you just, you know, couldn't get past it until you were forced to. And, and it given us more time, of course, as well. So we don't waste time you know, going from, from A to B. So we, we should be more productive, um, you know, with all these tools that we've got. Uh, so um, we, we should be doing better. Maybe things will evolve quicker. Um, you know, we, we're still, Nirvana for, for our industry is, is, you know, just making stuff um, available, you know, quicker, cheaper. We all want things to be delivered, you know, in a heartbeat. So latency is important. Uh, you know, availability is important. Cost is important. Um, and I think we're going to be driving, you know, all those all those kind of things we're, we're moving forward on. And um, um, so, yeah, life life will uh, be very different, better, worse. Who knows? You know, uh, um, I'll be able to see more. Or maybe I will get to the end of the Sopranos one day. I don't know. I'm still still trying. Um, I, I, I uh, if there's one thing I know, I now live in Jersey, so it might be cliche. If there's one thing I can tell you is you should prioritize getting to the. Uh, maybe that's the last episode of The Sopranos. The ending is a little bit, you know, not everyone's cup of tea. But uh, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing series that I'm now living on a daily basis. Um, uh, anyway, this has been a, a great conversation. I have to assume that if you are able to make that trip next Easter, that you know you will you will swing by and we can we can meet in person in New York and maybe uh, Nabil will will manage to uh, to find the escape uh, escape Kona in the West Coast, which I consider one place for you. <laughs> it's a it's a deal i'd love to do that phil yeah be good be good i'm glad that you were able to take the time to join us uh just to recap a few things one that there is going to be some sort of normalcy in the very near future as mankind we tend to take massive swings from rush 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 to being totally isolated and we are hoping that there's going to be some sort of a central medium where the life is of more value to all of us. And uh, we're learning learning something from this pandemic. I kind of put it this way that it's Mother Nature's way of uh, teaching us a lesson to create the life worth balance. Another thing to recap on is the fact, and it's actually kind of really a good news that uh, you shared with us, that there is enough talent coming into our space, into information technology and data centers. We still need to encourage younger generation 
to stay engaged and involved. And this is this is an opportunity. Infrastructure, IT, data centers. It is the future. It's the data rush. You know, start engaging yourself, be yourself, get into space, and try to make a difference. Based on your previous experiences, what advice would you give the younger generation or someone wanting to enter into our space? Well, I think any any space, it's um, do as much stuff as you can. You know, it, you know, I don't regret. It, um, I don't regret really anything I've done. Uh, the worst thing must be to regret something you didn't do that you you wanted to do. So just get out there. I, I don't know how you tell kids to do this, but you need to do this stuff. Don't don't say no. I mean, there are times when. You know, someone would say to me, let's go out and, and do this. And I'm thinking, I don't feel like it, but I will. You know, so in between working, you know, we've done a lot. One thing that brought it home to me, there was um, there was a, an advertisement on the TV. I think it was Virgin Travel, where the guy, there's a young guy walking on the street and uh, he sits down on a bench underneath the church. And as he sits down, there's one of these big statues at the top uh, cracks and starts to fall down right on him. He's looking up and this thing, and everything slows down and this statue is, and as it slows down, the Grim Reaper comes and sits next to him. And this guy is thinking about, you know, when he's young, he's partying, he's dancing, he's sailing, he's surfing, uh, he's, he's drinking with his pals, you know, and this thing is still coming down slower and slower. And he's thinking about all these things that he did. And, and in the end, the Grim Reaper falls asleep and the guy gets up and, and walks away. And the caption comes up. It says, when your past life is flashing before you, make sure you've got plenty to see. And I thought that was a brilliant thing. You know, how awful to be sitting in your rocking chair, you know, when you're old and can't move. And all you're thinking about is, is the days you spent on your screen, <laughs> you know, doing stuff. Um, I just think you, you, you've got to, you know, you've got to get out and do other stuff. Life, there is more to life than, you know, than work, what we do. So this work-life balance thing, even if you don't feel like doing it, just go out, get on your bike, go for a walk, do something, but um, make sure you do enough that, as I say, you've got plenty to see when you when you get old. And I think, I, you know, I'm fortunate that I've, I've done that. My my career has let me visit most countries of the globe. I can. It's probably easy to count the ones I haven't been to. But um, you know, this was absolutely phenomenal. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Really enjoyed having you. Thank you. Amazing. I enjoyed it. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.